Welcome everybody here. Um, we will have a number of seminars this year on national security issues, and this is one of the ones in that series. Um, Zev Maus is with us today from the uh, University of California, Davis, where he's recently moved uh, and taken up a position of uh, a professor there. I think I've known Zev my entire career. When I was finishing my graduate work at Pittsburgh, he was a postdoctoral fellow at Carnegie Mellon. That's when I first met him, and that was more than a few years ago. Since then, he's been to Mershon a number of times. He was part of a dialogue Mershon sponsored between Israeli National Security Center directors and Arab National Security Director Centers about seven or eight years ago and was here at that time and I think has been here other times as well. Many of you know he won the Carl Deutsch Award, the first non-American to ever win that from the International Studies Association is making an outstanding contribution for his scholarly work. He has <clears throat> published many books, I'll just list a few of them, National Choices and International Processes, the Cambridge published in 1990, Paradoxes of War on the Art of National Self-Entrapment that Boston um, Unwin Hyman published, Domestic Sources of Global Change that Michigan published, Bound by Struggle, The Strategic Evolution of Enduring International Rivalries that Michigan published. He has a forthcoming book called Defending the Holy Land, Critical Assessment of Israel's National Security and Foreign Policy that Michigan will be bringing out in the new year. He's been chair of the Department at Haifa. He's been director of an MA program at the National Defense College of the IDF. He's been director of the Jaffe Center at Tel Aviv. He's clearly a very distinguished and very accomplished person who made good in his career since I knew him 25 years ago. <laughs> it's really nice to have you back. Zev Maus. Thanks. Uh, Rick. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here again. And uh, uh, really a, a, a good opportunity to present some of the stuff that I'm doing uh, with a number of colleagues on a new project. Uh, so what I'd like to do is uh, spend a few minutes to tell you about the project in general and then go into some of the studies that we've uh, conducted within this project. Uh, as you see on the screen, uh, this is a collaborative project. Uh, Leslie Terry is a grad student of mine at Tel Aviv University. Renan Kuferman is a former student of mine uh, who's now teaching at the University of Haifa, and Ilan Talmud is a sociologist also at the University of Haifa. This uh, project uh, is really an effort... Get this running. Okay. Just uh, make sure that I have a pointer. Okay. Uh, this project uh, seeks to set, use 
develop some a comprehensive understanding of international politics as a system of networks. And uh, what we want to do is develop an understanding that is general. In other words, it looks at the entire system and at all the subunits of the system, state, diet, region, and we're also one of the key objectives of this project is to identify new uh, units of analysis uh, in international relations. We want to look at different processes, different issues, uh, some of which things that I'm going to be talking about concern international conflict, but we also want to look at networks of cooperative relations and so on. We want to develop a dynamic understanding, one that helps us understand how international relations evolve over time. So we're not seeking to explain uh, a specific period in international history. We're looking for an evolutionary uh, perspective. We want to uh, <coughs> develop a multi-level uh, explanation, and by that we mean that we want to develop explanations that could be generalizable across levels of analysis. And as many of you know, uh, IR scholarship is characterized by quite a few level of analysis paradoxes. That is, findings that uh, are valid at one level of analysis are not valid at another level of analysis. For example, findings that are valid that describe state behavior do not necessarily describe dyadic behavior. Uh, for uh, one of the uh, most central findings in international uh, relations, in recent international relations research, the democratic peace process is actually a level of analysis puzzle. You know that democracies are not uh, more, neither more nor uh, less war prone than non-democracies, but they don't fight one another. We also know that there is no significant relationship between the proportion of democratic states in the international system and the level of conflict in the system. So what we see in our project is to develop explanations that could be generalized across levels of analysis. Finally, we want these explanations to be logically coherent in that they all are embedded in one single general framework that contains both epistemological perspective and methodological aspects that are uh, tied to one another. Okay, so these are the aims of the project, and in order to proceed, let me start by uh, defining the key concept and uh, try to describe what is a uh, network. Those of you who are outside of uh, international relations are probably familiar, maybe those of you in international relations are familiar with social network analysis, but it's an approach that encompasses a wide variety of disciplines. It's used uh, extensively in sociology, it's used extensively in organizational behavior theories, it's used by uh, neurologists, and, and it, it's a, an approach that uh, has both an underlying methodological structure and a wide variety of applications. And basically, uh, this literature defines a network as a group of units that are bound together by some rule or link or a, a certain connection, okay? And uh, in uh, this approach basically talks about two general types of, uh, of networks. One type concerns relational networks. 
And in relational networks, units are bound, or some of the units in the system are bound to one another by some type of relationship. Okay, you can uh, look at this. Uh, I can pass a questionnaire in, in this uh, uh, room and ask uh, each of you to name his or her friend in this group. Okay, and and the resulting um, analysis will be to define or identify structure of friendship in this group, okay? In international relations, we can demonstrate a relational network, uh, for example, by alliances. And this is one way of representing networks. Uh, for this matrix is an N by N matrix where the rows and the columns represent all states <coughs> in the system that existed as independent units in 1840. And each entry in this matrix is either zero, which means that the row state has no alliance with the column state, or one if to, uh, the row state has an alliance with uh, uh, the column state. Another way of showing the same network is uh, through a graph. And this is the same matrix shown as a graph. And what you can see is a bunch of states on the left. These are states that had no alliance with each other. And here we can see all alliances. We can look at dyadic alliances. For example, this is an alliance between uh, Italy and some other Italian city-state system. Uh, 200 is Britain, 235 is Portugal, I think. Uh, and you can see groups of alliances. Uh, and you can, for example, see that 300 Austria-Hungary and 255 Prussia are pretty central in this system, okay? And that they serve as bridges, they connect different alliances to each other, okay? So this is another way of representing networks. And this, both the graphic and the matrix representation allow us to derive properties, not only of the system as a whole, but also of specific units within the system. And uh, some of the studies what we're doing in uh, this project concern the properties of systems, of different systems as a whole, and some of the studies concern properties of subunits. The study or studies I'm going to talk about uh, focus on the dyadic level, uh, but uh, the idea is that you can as I said, derive multi-level explanations uh, using this perspective. And this is just a point representation of the world in terms of alliances, okay? So this is an alliance network. Uh, this is one type of network. Another type of network is uh, something that we call <coughs> affiliational networks, or social network theories called relational networks, a one mode, a single mode network and affiliational networks are two mode networks. Uh, an example, uh, affiliational networks basically reflect the affiliation of units with groups, events, or structures. Okay? In this example, we look at the ethnic distribution of the international system. Okay? So suppose we have a list of ethnic groups and the, we have a list of states. And each entry in this table, in this matrix, represents the fact that a given state has 10% of its population or more 
that belongs to a certain ethnic group. Obviously, since states could be multi-ethnic, each state might be and might be a member of different ethnic groups. Okay, another example, if I ask people in this room to list all of the professional societies they're affiliated with, I will get a similar kind of table. And one of the things we can do with affiliational networks is convert them into relational networks. Simple mathematical operation of multiplying this matrix by its transpose, we will get a relational network that will reflect the extent of similarity or dissimilarity in terms of ethnic compositions of any two or any set of states in this respect. So, for example, if I wanted to look at the composition of relationship of ethnic similarity uh, among states in the system in 1840, I will get this picture. Okay? Uh, so, uh, these are affiliational networks. There's another term which I will skip because I'm not going to deal with it at the time. And this is the uh, distinction between discretionary and non-discretionary uh, discretionary networks. Essentially, discretionary networks are networks that uh, are the result of choices of the units. Okay? So, alliances, trade, IGO membership, reflect choices by states. Okay? <coughs> states decide to trade with one another, they decide to align with one another, what the structures that emerge out of this thing are uh, uh, consequences of individual unit decisions. Non-discretionary uh, networks are networks that reflect fundamental attributes of units that make them either similar or different from other units. For example, ethnic composition uh, networks are uh, non-discretionary networks. As I said, I'm not going to talk about these things. So let me skip to the first study. First study essentially deals with the question, uh, the following question. What is the relationship between different types of affinity and conflict at the dyadic level? In other words, does a certain type of affinity affect the degree or the probability of conflict between each state? And which types of affinity uh, have what kind of impact on dyadic, on the propensity of dyads to engage in conflict. In many ways, different international relations paradigms have dealt with different types of affinity. And affinity is central, although we label it different in different studies, uh, it's nevertheless a central concept in many paradigms. Let me give you an example, or several examples, of different conceptions of affinity. For example, in realism, affinity means essentially strategic affinity or common interest. Okay? So, basically, realists talk about a fundamental lack of affinity, but a necessity to cooperate because of the condition of anarchy, because the states are not sufficiently powerful to defend themselves against all threats. They seek other states with whom they share some sort of common interest, and these interests are typically expressed in alliance ties, and these ties are supposedly uh, important determinants of the extent to which states would fight with one another or not. In liberalism, we 
typically talk about economic affinity in terms of trade ties or institutional affinities, in terms of the subscription to, of states to similar norms that are reflected in institutions or maybe informal. Constructivism, or cultural perspective, talk about the effect of identity on behavior. What you do depends on who you are. So from that we can typically derive, we can derive some uh, hypotheses about the relationship between common or different identities and the behavior of states. I'm not going to go too much into the explanation. I'm going to jump straight to some hypotheses. The paper tries to explain how each of the paradigms talks about the effect of different types of affinities on uh, conflict behavior, and I will try to summarize it in terms of different hypotheses. So let me talk about these three paradigms and their, the hypotheses that are derived from these paradigms. The realist hypothesis basically says very simple thing. Greater the similarity of alliance uh, portfolios, the greater the convergence of interests. In other words, the more common interests the states, two states have, the less likely that they are to fight one another. And this is what the, what the realist paradigm says about what states will do or what would affect their behavior. But the realist paradigm also tells us about what doesn't matter. For example, if you look at the work of Mersheimer on uh, the false promise of, inter uh, of international institutions that is reflected also in other writings, there is a corollary to that, and that is that other types of affinities simply don't matter to the extent that they don't uh, reflect security-related uh, interests, they don't matter. So in other words, trade ties would not matter. IGO membership should not matter. Uh, cultural similarity or dissimilarity is not a real factor, and so on and so forth. The liberal paradigm talks about the effect of not necessarily, does not reject the significance of strategic interest on conflict behavior, but it says that this is not the only determinant. And other determinants are also important, maybe more important than strategic ties. So trade affinity or IGO-related affinity reflects the subscription of states to similar or different international regimes. And these uh, regimes impose constraints on the self-interested behavior or the short-term interests uh, of states. And therefore, the greater the degree of trade-related or IGO-related affinity, the lower the likelihood of conflict between them. Obviously, the, the works of Russell, O'Neill, uh, and others in the liberal tradition uh, has uh, relevance here. Uh, I can also talk about uh, uh, democratic affinity as being part of some sort of normative regime, but I'm not going to go into it right now. <clears throat> okay. Uh, it might be a sin 
to lump together constructivism and, cultural, and the culturalist perspective Allah But nevertheless, my reading of these literature suggests that they share some sort of common ideas. And, that, and the idea is that cultural similarity generates a sense of common identity. Common identity would reflect some sort of uh, equivalent to what realists call uh, strategic affinity or what uh, uh, liberals call economic or, or regime-related affinity. And so the argument here is that we will see conflicts across cultural divides, and we will probably not see conflicts within cultural or identity-based divides, uh, groups. Okay. Some, uh, there were some efforts to measure different types of affinity, mostly the strategic affinity concept, by uh, people like Buena de Mesquita, who uh, used a measure of alliance portfolio similarity uh, and tried to derive expected utility measures from that. Signorino and Ritter, in an ISQ article, uh, accepted the fundamental uh, Bueno de Mesquita concept of strategic affinity, but criticized the use of Taubi, uh, the Taubi measure. They said that it has some undesirable properties that lead to some absurd uh, result and so on, so they offered an alternative uh, measure, the S measure. Uh, there's some problem with these measures in terms of the kind of things that we're interested in. The first one is that these measures account for direct relations between states but do not account for indirect relationships. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Suppose we have a system of four states and the arrows reflect alliance ties between states. Now, if we try to uh, examine the <coughs> level of, of alliance portfolio similarity between states A and B in that system, we will get this table. <coughs> Sorry. Yeah. Uh, and A, each state in the Buena de Mesquita and, and Signorino and Ritter uh, scheme is said to be aligned with itself. It's said to have a defense pact with itself because, uh, because if it is attacked, it will defend itself. Okay? So A is aligned with itself and has a defense pact with uh, itself and with C. B has a defense pact with itself and with D. The uh, alliance portfolio similarity measure that we get is minus one, which is as, as uh, uh, different as you can go. Okay? And this is based on the direct ties between A and C and B and D. But if we look at the indirect ties, uh, and one way of looking at uh, the indirect ties is to convert the matrix that I presented before into what so-called reachability matrix, which I'm not going to go into the math of that, but, but basically the, the graph here shows all the ties, the direct and indirect ties between these four states. You can see the letters, too small. But if you look, if you deduce alliance portfolio similarity from this graph, you get this matrix. All states have a defense pact, direct or indirect defense pact with one another. So the tau B measure here will be 1.0, which is just the opposite. It means that these states 
if you look at both direct and indirect sides, are as close to one another as they, as they can get. Okay. So this is a one problem with these measures. And it's not because you're using tau v or x, it's because you think about direct ties rather than direct and indirect ties. Another problem is that they depend on one type of a relationship at, at a time. And they do not allow integration or incorporation of multiple relationships. For example, if you wanted to, uh, you had alliance ties between A and B, and you got the minus one uh, score, uh, as we've seen. But you also wanted to look at trade at the same time, and you had some scheme to divide the level of trade between uh, these two states into the, those uh, uh, three, uh, four levels, high, medium, low, and no trade. And you get an, another matrix that reflects the level uh, the, the trade portfolios of these two states will get a different measure. How do you incorporate them? No, uh, there's no, uh, uh, please, we, we don't know from the literature, from the existing literature, how to do that. A third problem is that uh, these measures require relational networks. They do not allow incorporation of affiliation-based networks. So if you wanted, for example, to test constructivist ideas uh, using concepts of uh, affinity based on identity, then uh, we will not be, we cannot do it according to the existing scheme. The, uh, the BDM and the Signorino and Ritter uh, schemes require categorical data. Even when you have volumes of trade, you have to collapse them into different categories in order to generate uh, similarity uh, portfolios. And finally, they require symmetric data. What we mean by symmetric data is that if I'm aligned with you, with Rick, then Rick is aligned with me. But if I export to Brian, doesn't mean that Brian exports to me. So if I look at export matrices, they're not going to be symmetric. And therefore, they won't fit. Okay. So what did we propose instead? This is where we go back to uh, social network analysis. Social network analysis has a very important concept of structural equivalence. Uh, in order to explain this concept, let me just uh, show you two examples. Uh, this is a network, say, alliance, okay? So this specifies the alliance type between states A and all other states in the system. And this reflects the same uh, type between state B and all other states in the system. Now, A and B do not have an alliance. But their ties with everybody else are sufficiently similar as to make them structurally equivalent. Okay? So in this case, we will get a very high structural equivalence score. The second example is very similar. So we have the same relationship between B and all other states in the system. And we have a tie between A and B. So A and B are aligned with one another. But since the structure of relations of A with other members in the system is not similar to that of, of B, they are structurally equivalent, but not as high as in the first case. Okay? Structural equivalent, in short, 
is the extent to which two states are similar or different in terms of the relationship with all other states in the system, as well as one, as with one another. Now, if you know, and I'm sure you're familiar with all the dyadic literature and conflict, trade and conflict, democratic peace and conflict, and so on and so forth, uh, IGO membership and conflict, typically these uh, studies look at the, at the relationship between these two states and infer from this relationship about their conflict behavior. Okay, so they will look at the volume of trade between state I and state J and try to predict the level of conflict that results from the, the, this volume or the, the extent to which two states uh, have shared membership in the same international organization and so on and so forth. What we propose is that if you want to think of affinity, you have to think in terms of structural equivalence, in terms of the extent to which states are similar or different in terms of their relationship with other members of, in the system. And in order to overcome all the, of the problems that we talked about in terms of the existing measure, structural equivalence is simply the co a correlation. And you can measure structural equivalence in terms of Euclidean distances as well. We look at the as correlation between a unit's relation with all other members in the system and another unit's relation with the same members of the system. And you can do it for each type of relationship separately. So you can do it for a trade network separately, from alliance network, and from uh, an alliance network separately from uh, IGO membership networks and so on. But you can also integrate these simply by bringing a whole set of affinities together within one joint hypermatrix and uh, computing the multiple correlation between state I uh, relations with all other members in the system across a variety of networks and the relations of another state across a variety of networks with other members of the system. So what you can do is both look at different types of affinity and you can also say, can also develop an integrative model. And the integrative model says basically it's not one type of affinity that accounts for the level of conflict, but it's the extent to which affinities cross over from one type or spill over from one type of relationship to another type which uh, accounts for the level of conflict in the system. So this brings us to the test of the hypothesis. And uh, what we do, our dependence on the variables are the, the presence or absence of militarized interstate disputes between states at a given year uh, and, and we look at the entire uh, set of diet in the international system. We also look at the subpopulation of politically relevant diet that I don't report it here. And, and uh, another dependent variable is only, uh, only the presence or absence of an interstate war, that is, of a high intensity, violent, extremely violent conflict. I'm sure you're all familiar with the myth and war definitions, so I'm not going to go into them. And we use a number of, of control, traditional control variables. I'm not going to talk about them. If you want, I'll, uh, I'll uh, discuss them in the uh, answer, uh, question and answer period. 
What I'm interested in is two things. First, the extent to which, uh, by the way, uh, just uh, uh, to clarify, we find a very little, uh, very small correlations between the tau v or seniorino and Ritter alliance similarity measures and our measures of affinity. So there's no problem of multicollinearity here. Uh, and so what we want to see is the extent to which different types of affinity uh, have an effect on the level of conflict or the, the presence or absence of uh, conflict between these things. And what we find are uh, some uh, of the results are not surprising. They go in line with the literature. Specifically, we find that the alliances. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the first and third order. Uh, if you want to ask me about that, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, answer that. But uh, let's just look at the first order relationship. Uh, alliance. Uh, first, we find that the Signorino and Ritter and Bueno de Mesquita generally show a significant uh, negative impact on the probability of dyadic conflict. The, our measure of uh, a, a strategic affinity based on alliances consistently has a negative impact, a dampening impact on the probability of conflict. Surprisingly, I mean, in seeming contradiction to the liberal paradigm, trade-related affinity has a positive impact. On, on conflict. Uh, just ignore the third level here, which is negative. Uh, and even more surprisingly, linguistic affinity, and we looked at the extent to which two states, any two states, share an affinity with all other members of the system in terms of linguistic similarity, linguistic groups. And uh, religious uh, linguistic affinity has a positive impact on conflict, on dyadic conflict. Religious uh, similarity generally does not have a uh, significant relationship, but it has a negative relationship, and so does uh, linguistic affinity on the probability of war between states. Okay? Uh, we also wanted to see in what happens if we integrate all the relational networks, alliances, oh, I'm sorry, an IGO does not appear to have a robust uh, impact on, uh, on conflict. We also wanted to look at the extent to which integrative uh, measures of affinity, those that combine alliances, trade, and IGO membership have an impact uh, on uh, conflict. And here we find a significant and consistent in negative impact, uh, both first and third order uh, affinity, integrated affinity on conflict. In other words, if you incorporate alliances, trade, IGO, membership, affinity into one measure, then this measure has a significant and consistent uh, in negative impact on the probability of, of MIDs and wars between states. Linguistic and religious affinity have the same impact as, as before. Uh, now, there's a problem with the trade and IGO uh, data, which, uh, the, uh, which uh, you know, some of the liberals will claim you haven't really replicated the radical yield stuff. So what we've done is we 
divided the entire period first into um, three sub-periods. One, one set of, of divisions is 19th versus 20th century <coughs> conflict. And the other one is uh, covering the Rasset and O'Neill period, the 1950-2001. And what we see is that if, uh, and, uh, these are the last, the uh, left most column. So what we see there is that indeed when we do it for the 20th century and for the post-World War uh, era, uh, trade and IGO have a negative impact on conflict, significant and negative uh, impact. If we look only at politically relevant diet, again, uh, trade and uh, IGO have a negative impact on, uh, on MID. The uh, effect of trade on MID <coughs> stops being significant for wars, but IGOs are still, IGO affinities still significant for wars. What are the conclusions? Well, first, that some measures of, well, the measures of strategic affinity in line with the realist paradigm seem to have a consistently dampening effect on the probability of MIDs and war. So, in general, the realist paradigm seems to be on track here. Uh, on, uh, on the other hand, when you look at the effect of trade and IGO-related affinity on conflict depends on the specific time period or the specific population that you use. It's not robust with respect to time, nor is it robust with respect to the population. And those of you who are familiar with the trade conflict debate between Barbieri and, and Russell O'Neill uh, know that that's basically the difference. If you look at the entire population of diet, trade has a positive impact on conflict. Uh, if you look at politically relevant diet, then trade has a negative impact on conflict. What uh, <clears throat> is surprising, at least to some culturalists or constructivists, and Alex will tell me if I'm in, in the ballpark, uh, at all is that linguistic uh, structural equivalence has to be general, uh, has general, uh, generally speaking, a positive impact on conflict. Religious affinity, on the other hand, does not uh, significantly affect conflict. Uh, questions about the extent to which these uh, these expectations of the cultural or uh, constructivist a paradigm that talk about the effect of identity on conflict and cooperation uh, is, uh, uh, are indeed in line with empirical uh, data. Uh, so let me, let me just um, finish with one general remark, and I uh, haven't been able to talk about the other study, but, but uh, basically this is an aspect of a perspective, a paradigm that contains both a methodological infrastructure and uh, a wide variety of ways of interpreting or reinterpreting existing paradigms into some uh, new perspectives or new measures in this case of relations and try to generalize from them about 
in this case, conflict. We can also talk about conflict and cooperation. We can talk about relations among networks and so on and so forth. So uh, this is one demonstration analysis, but I'll be happy to talk about other issues. Thank you. Guy. Regime, 
Well, maybe they were wrong, and I agree with you. And one of the things that I'm, I'm, uh, uh, we're looking at is the factors that affect the formation and evolution of networks. And we're thinking about, for example, the, the other paper that I didn't talk about is entitled The Enemy of My Enemy. What exactly is it? And what we're looking here is, is uh, at uh, the effect of indirect relationships on relationships. So, for example, the next step would be looking at indirect relationships that are reflected both in terms of enmity. States had prior conflict with one another on their networking patterns, who they trade with, uh, who they align with, and so on. So, yeah, that's just definitely, we're not talking about one type of causal uh, uh, process. We're talking about multiple processes, but, you know, different papers try to do different things. So this particular... All your conclusions are in this particular, uh, yeah, in this particular, uh, but I'm not claiming, I mean, I, I, what we're claiming here is to derive some hypotheses about this particular causal process from existing paradigms, try to integrate some of these things, and talk about the implications as these paradigms have us believe. Uh, but we're not, you know, we're not suggesting that this is the only way that you can look at it. Um, I wanted to pick up on John's question, but uh, raise the concern I had about your rendition of the constructivist story in a more general uh, way. I guess um, what struck me in the whole discussion was that um, you seem to be assuming that the units are somehow there. They have boundaries, they're hard shelled, and so on. And they interact and they form networks. And um, as I read some of the network literature, and I know this is not true for all of it, on the other hand, units themselves emerge from the networks. And um, if you think about on the material side, globalization and trade and so on, arguably sort of traverses and penetrates the units and sort of makes them less clearly unit identified. And on the identity side, um, arguably, to my mind, a constructive story wouldn't be about the similarity between us and them. It would be about, do, they, do we see them as part of us? So in a sense, the, the, the boundary between them is blurred. So I guess I'm wondering how you, uh, or whether you intend to sort of imply that the units have insurgent boundaries on the material and the mm -hmm. side, and if so, why? Well, yeah, well, it depends on which paradigm you work with. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm working on a paper on the origins, the national origins of networks, which basically looks at the, the dependent variable is the, formation of, is the formation and evolution of networks. And if you go in, in uh, uh, you go the realist way, you know, you have to make this assumption because that's what they do. But it's not necessarily true for either the, real, the liberal paradigm or the constructivist paradigm. Uh, for, it's definitely not true for the constructivist paradigm. And so you have to sort of generate ideas from subunits, basically. But, but you have to think about, you know, probably start, if you wanted to be, go all the way, if you were a constructivist, you had to start with an individual, I mean, uh, possibly, uh, with, with, <laughs> with a view, with a mind person. Uh, if you're a liberal, you may want to start with subgroups. For example, you know, a lot of trade patterns are not state-controlled. I mean, states might at some point intervene in trade, but state uh, trade might be initiated between <coughs> firms, between individuals, and so on. So even if you're a, a, a liberal, you, or a lot of IGO memberships emerge out of sort of grassroots uh, ideas and pressure groups and so on. So in both paradigms, you have to go to the sub-state level. The 
there is a problem if you, when you go to test these things, because uh, eventually you have to look at uh, data that is aggregated at the state level. I mean, and unless you want to look at specific trade patterns or specific relations among individuals or groups and so on, which will make things just empirically unmanageable, then you have to sort of aggregate. The, and the aggregation might cause some slippage between the fundamental concept of a paradigm, and it, this applies, I guess, most, uh, uh, mostly to the uh, constructivist paradigm, but also to the liberal paradigm. And when you aggregate, you, you know, bound to, engage, uh, uh, bound to sort of divert a little bit and get some measurement error, what we call in methodology, uh, between your concept and, or, and, and uh, the construct and the measure and so on. So uh, there is a dilemma. I mean, which way you want to go? I mean, if you want to go uh, the sort of large N route to test these uh, theories, you have to aggregate. And then the, the, the only way I, can, I know you can do it is be very explicit about what you do, how you aggregate these things, and, you know, uh, open yourself to criticism. And uh, if somebody wanted to do it differently, that's fine. Can I just briefly follow up I mean, sure. on the aggregation issue? I mean, as I sort of think about, say, the U.S.-British relationship, the special relationship, or even U.S.-Israel, um, it seems to me it's not about sub-state things, it's a trans-state phenomenon. And in a sense, we and the Brits are the same unit for many, many purposes. Sort of a common collective identity. It's not about our similarity to the Brits or our similarity to the Israelis. We've built this common identity um, that, in a sense, can't be broken apart that into separate So I don't see it as necessarily a matter of having to go downward. It may also be a matter of going upward. Well, that, this, this is less of a problem in social network analysis because you can generate from different types of types. Uh, Subunits. I mean, it doesn't have to be only U.S. Great uh, Britain or U.S. Uh, Israel. It can be a whole subset of states that share some sort of either, you know, relational bonds or some sort of identity-based bonds that makes them other units. For example, social network analysis talks about the concept of cliques. Cliques is something that is derived from a set of relationships. It emerges set of relationship. It's not something that is predetermined by the researcher. You determine whether two states had an alliance or whether two states traded with one another. And the structure that emerges from patterns of relationship is formed different cliques. And so you can look at these things uh, in an aggregated way without imposing, without pre-imposing some sort of substantive assumptions that are bound to be, you know, uh, subject to criticism. Yes. In the beginning, if you go back to like when you set the relationships up, you had the equivalence, you had that. Okay. I, I like where you started. You built this whole structural thing that I, I really thought was interesting. And what I, you know, my, it's, it's not really a criticism. I mean, I hate to say, like, you didn't write the paper or the book that I wanted you to write, but you did. It's great. You came to the right conclusion. Realism one. No, I don't, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, but see, you have really cool uh, spatial relationships. Right? And now, when I tried to make this decision long ago, I started social networking. Uh, there was a book called Structural Holes. Mm -hmm. Right? Did you know this book? Yeah. And, and it was about strategic, it had this kind of stuff, and even like the ones that were really cool, it had the, 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 like, the 
read me, looked at them, mm-hmm. and had that stuff. That, and what was interesting about it, and where I thought you were going to go, was uh, that you thought strategically, like when you're networking, there are predictions about how these structural holes that are created through these spatial relations of these networks means that there's some nodes that are really good to get, you know, at the beginning. And that's where I thought you were going to go, and so that your hypothesis would be sort of how you think strategically um, to network. Okay. And to, and, to, and to build your leverage into like negotiating diplomacy or something like that. And where you went, it seemed to me, was much more pedestrian to me because I don't see what I don't see what the value added of all the front loading that you did happens at the end. It seems like just an aggregation at the end. And so what you did is you aggregated these affinities and you sort of it, it didn't you know what I mean? Like I, I don't I don't know why you needed to do all this to get to where you got at the end. Whereas you have something really cool. I mean, this is really good. This be, you did all this work to create these spatial relations networks. So I think, you, you know, it's just a suggestion. I wish you would take advantage of that and actually use social network theory and, and, and come up with strategic hypotheses. Well, yeah, well, uh, this, is, this is exactly what I'm working on right now. It's an, it's an attempt to theorize about how networks are formed, about what kind of calculations state make about creating relationship and what are the, the network-related implications of those uh, calculations. And in many cases, uh, uh, we observe that, that uh, there are surprising counterintuitive implications. Uh, the paper I haven't suggested, it basically shows that there are a lot of imbalances, that uh, thinking that two states share the same enemy does not imply, does imply that they will be friends, but at the same time it does not imply or cannot imply that they will be enemies. But it turns out that they are both friends and enemies. So we have a lot of imbalances. We, we, uh, we try to account for these imbalances in terms of different uh, theories. But this paper basically really tried to say something about how states relate to one another and uh, tried to go beyond the straightforward dyadic conception of, I trade with you, therefore we should be friends. Okay? But if I trade with you and you trade with other states, and uh, I trade uh, from different states from the states I trade with, then maybe we're not as, as close friends if we share the same trading patterns. Or maybe we shouldn't be trading uh, friends at all. You know, I'm sure Brian will have something to say about it. But the, what we try to do is talk about different relationships that are not self-evident from a, a straightforward dyadic relationship. I, I want to say one word about the sort of third level uh, concept. If, you know, in many cases, you know, alliances could be like uh, AIDS. The ally of, you know, once I align with you, I align with your alliance, uh, with alliance partners, and so on. Or I trade with you, I trade with your trade partners, and so on. So what we try to do there is look at third level indirect relationship. Relationship of state A with state B and state B with state C, and state C with state B, with the, the, ally of, the ally of my ally, so to speak, and infer from there, from this type of relationship, uh, some sort of affinity. Uh, and, and we see that this kind of affinity actually has a stronger 
effect and more consistent effect on conflict behavior than the straightforward first order relationship. So there are a lot of counterintuitive things that emerge even from a seemingly pedestrian uh, uh, approach, but you know, what, what no, you're suggesting is, is, is an entirely different thing, which is, you know. No, I think the approach isn't pedestrian at all. I just didn't like where you draw that. I think you could do a lot more of it. And just one other comment, just because I think Flo, you know, I are here, so I have to forget this word, so stories don't. Um, alliances, at least in the 19th century, or I'm sure before that too, uh, the great powers had alliances, a very different alliance structure in Europe, in the core, than they did in Asia and Africa. So that Britain could be allied with Germany, you know, in, in Asia against a certain state, you know, against the French, and it, but in Africa could be very different, and in the core could be very different. So it's very hard to say, you know, well, they're allied with them. It depends on what region and what state you're talking about. Well, we, we've done, by the way, when presented, but we've done all kinds of breakdowns, regional breakdowns and other breakdowns. That we, at least with respect to alliances, the results are, are very similar. So uh, you may argue that certainly, you know, substantive types of alliances are different. For example, alliances among major powers are different from alliances between major powers and minor powers. Uh, but we don't find any regional variability, so uh, I'm not sure this, this uh, applies. John? Uh, yeah, you mentioned in passing that there's not a very good correlation between your measure and between signorinos and by the mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. Is that, I mean, is that causing problems? I mean, no, they, the, they the alliance... The same thing, so you yeah, but, by the way, the alliance of the first order alliance uh, structural equivalence is highly correlated. There is no, there isn't much correlation between Signorino and Rita and, and Buena de Mexico because they're using different statistical measures. Uh, but there is a pretty high correlation between our measure of first order uh, structural equivalent, or sorry, third order structural equivalent and, and EDM measure. Uh, that's why we didn't use them in the same equation. Uh, but. Uh, Right. Uh, no, we, we use when we use the third order, we use Signorino uh, measure, which doesn't correlate. Uh, well, could you explain why there isn't? I mean, you're, you're all three trying to measure the same thing, right? Well, what, what so you expect? You wouldn't expect further correlation. I mean, we, we we shouldn't make too much of the, the correlation because it's really a, a, a full cross-sectional time series data set, and the correlation sort of get, get uh, you know, dispense with both the time-related uh, dimension and with the spatial dimension. So these are straightforward product and correlation across all states over the entire period of time. So it's just uh, to give us a uh, sort of sense to what extent these things are similar or different. But uh, I, I really don't know why there isn't a lot of uh, a high level of correlation. I guess the, the measures might be similar, different in terms of what they're measuring. For example, uh, since uh, in, in BDN's uh, uh, case, uh, both, both cases will get roughly the same score. In our case, uh, uh, in our uh, study, those two cases will get different scores. So, I'm not sure about Signorino and Rico, uh, but uh, I, I, I think that basically there, there, there's a different way of measuring things, and, and it produces different results. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. 
I'm just missing something, but um, your, your point that uh, you wanted your approach to be able to cover all sorts of different kinds of units, um, and your effort to incorporate things like language and culture, um, has me wondering about things like uh, how you incorporate uh, geography and terrain, things like proximity, uh, in, in part because my understanding of some social networks is that at least with some of the modeling, there's an assumption that input information flows in a relatively uh, uh, similar way throughout all the different uh, scopes. But even with some work on trade, you know, you have you have significant proximity effects, um, relevance between different. Well, yeah. Again, I'm going back to this paper on the national origins of network. There's a concept that. Uh, I, I talked about non-discretionary networks. I, uh, there's a, a, a concept that I uh, developed that I call uh, uh, politically relevant networks. And these are networks that are defined by uh, geographic proximity. Uh, relationships between states or between units are defined by the extent to which uh, you can define them in terms of, in binary terms, whether or not they share the same border. Uh, or you can define them in, in, in uh, uh, continuous terms, as the distance is the, simply uh, the spatial distance between capitals. And, and uh, from this relationship, you can form uh, the, the procedure allows you to, the methodology allows you to form clicks. And the clicks tend to be groupings, regional groupings that emerge not out of somebody deciding, you know, the Middle East goes from Iran in the east to Morocco in the west, and from Sudan in the south to Turkey in the north. Uh, but something that, that is generated by, by the, the approach. And then you can see, for example, to what extent uh, politically relevant cliques match trade cliques or match alliance style, or match even conflict style. Uh, and uh, that, that's, uh, you, you can incorporate that. Again, we didn't, the only way we, we took account of distance or uh, geographic proximity in this paper was to divide the population into politically relevant and non-politically relevant diets. Uh, this definition takes into account uh, proximity. I guess I'm trying to figure out whether uh, whether when you aggregate to a higher level and you lose that uh, resolution of, of um, proximity effects, um, whether whether you're, you're losing some some assumptions of, of how networking works. Well, I, I, this is not uh, this is not a paper about how networking works. This is given a network. What are the implications? And, and uh, if you want to look at how networking works, you have to make, you have to uh, uh, state hypotheses about how distance or proximity affects relationships. And that, you know, and that could be done, as I said, by, for example, looking at uh, uh, geographic proximity as part of the, the type of relationship, excuse me, or the source of relationship between states. Yes. Um. This is a very interesting project for me. I guess one question I have is about uh, the comparison between your uh, measure of hostility and tolerance and speakers. And to my recollection, some people actually attacked 
going to be misleading because somehow the users think that alliance is a really factor similarity of interest. Now, you're taking it actually a, a step further, saying not only I'm going to look on two sectors are our allies together, but I'm also looking on indirect alliances. And can you, can, you, can, you say, can you say that this is an advantage of your affinity measure compared to media I guess? Is it really an advantage? Do you really capture some of that similarity of interest? When you look at indirect relations, kind of second down? Well, uh, there, yes. Uh, if, if you want to look at indirect relations, if you, look, you want to uh, look at direct relations, you look, for example, at, uh, I, I presented this matrix uh, of the, the alliance structure in 1840. That's the matrix of all direct relations between states in terms of alliance. You want to look at second-order relationships, the ally of my ally, you have to square this matrix. And the squared matrix will reflect only second-order relationships. Third order, you uh, raise it to the third power and so on. When we looked at the third order relationship, we summed across the first order, second order, and third order matrix. So the reachability, the third order reachability matrix, which is the sum of uh, the first order, second order, and third order matrix, reflects all relations between states of the first, second, and third order. It means that if, for example, if I'm an ally of Rick and Rick is your ally and you're an ally of Alex, and then this, the third order matrix will say, I'm, a, I'm an ally of Rick, I'm your ally, and I'm Alex's ally, okay? BDN's measure will not look at that, will not take that into account. And, and so the third order will reflect this kind of order n-order relationship or n-1 order relationship will reflect all kinds of indirect alliances that you have. Uh, and that's the fundamental difference. This is at least one of the differences between our measure and BDN's. Rick. The line of research that uh, Nicholas Sandanis along with Boyle and Cushion mostly Sandanis actually and they find in uh, World Bank data and some other data that there's not a strong, it's on peacemaking and what leads to peace and civil wars. And they find that actually when you use the census category distinctions, you know, religion, uh, language, so forth and so on, uh, there's no correlation between those and the difficulties of settling conflict and getting peace or making peace state once you get mm -hmm. And at the same time, they find a very strong relationship between what they call identity and the difficulty of getting peace and making a peace agreement stick if you can get it. And they, like many psychologists, find that the Association when we talk about identity, they talk about stakes in the conflict, or they talk about identity in the sense of identity in the, in the sense of perceived common, um, commonness. Okay. And what they argue, like most psychologists, is that there's really little association between these what I'll call census categories and actually politically meaningful cleavages, because there's so many possible politically salient cleavages that get moved by political entrepreneurs. At different times, you can have the same population cleave different ways, oh, right. depending on whether you know this political leader wants to emphasize mm -hmm. difference or similarity. And in fact, a lot of these coming out of the social identity tradition think group comes first, and then perceive similarity as invented uh, to explain why the group is created, even if the group is created by experimental artifact or some other historical artifact. And, and I, so I've been wondering how to, I mean, I realize it creates a difficult measure, but your other two measures. Are, 
are much less um, <coughs> clumsy in the sense that you have alliance data, which is, a, is an act of volition on the part of the agent. And your trade is an act of volition on the part of the agent. And then you have your third set of measures, and there's no act of volition on That's the part of the agent. That's why I call it non-discretionary. And necessary. so you're, you're now you're no. comparing, in some ways, my mind, uh, unequal tests of the paradigm. Because what, you, what you've eliminated here is this, if we have a prior wars or some other proxy for identity that had an act of volition connected to it, because I think that's what Sam Bannis and Boiler have, I think that's the latent idea underneath their empirical findings. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think you're basically coming back to the point that, yeah, that uh, Don and, and uh, uh, Alex made uh, earlier about sort of what is identity. And you're right. You're absolutely right about that. I, 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 have no, you know, I, I realize the, the problems here. But let me tell you a little story from the other study that I didn't talk about. What we find there is that uh, states that share linguistic and religious identity tend to be both allies and enemies at the same time. Okay? And we, we try to sort of say, you know, how could constructivists account for that? What, or culturalist, I'm not, okay, excuse me. <laughs> How would Huntington account for that? And one of the explanations uh, we came up with was the following. And it uh, goes directly to your point about sort of groups. Suppose you are a, a leader of a state that has a certain ethnic group as a majority, okay, and rules the country. And Don is the leader of another uh, state where uh, the majority oppresses a minority that shares affinity with your state. Okay? You're likely, more likely to have conflict with Don, right? Even though you both share common identity. You have the same group. One is majority, one is a minority, but you still have some affinity. You may have the same language. You know, so what we, we did, I mean, it was very difficult to test it because we didn't have, uh, we only had, uh, we looked at the Minority at Risk Project uh, data and, and we, uh, we looked at that and we found that this is indeed the case. I mean, it, it really, when, when these situations take place, the conflict increases. And I, my guess is that when you apply it to the duration of settlement or the stability of settlement, yes, it would, it would uh, apply as well. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you. I, I think that, that, you know, our measure here of, of uh, uh, linguistic and religious affinity are not on the same part because they're not the same networks. As you point them, they don't involve an act of volition to maybe to convert the constructivist perspective to a some sort of affinity-based uh, uh, implication for relations, you need to have some identity. You know, people saying, I'm a Shiite first or an Iraqi first. I'm a, uh, a I'm a, uh, I don't know, I'm a uh, uh, Russian or I'm a Christian. Okay, what, what am I first? And, and then, you know, from that you need to derive relationship. But unfortunately, you know, we still don't have these kinds of data, at least not on a cross-national uh, level. Yeah. Um, I'm also hung up on this identity issue, and so it's going to overlap, but it's slightly different, I think. Um, I guess if, if you're doing that type of network effect in the potential context, I just kept thinking about what about a negative affiliation network 
um, so that each individual identity is defined by and inseparable from its per, uh, potential for conflict with the other. So I'm not going to be me without my potential for conflict with you. I can uh, have so, um, in, in a sense, the identity is uh, defined by a network, but that network is a, a negative relation network. And I'm wondering if you can capture that. It seems really important to because to capture it, and yet it also seems like it would then make the definition of identity endogenous to the potential uh, we, we really haven't done that, uh, not that yet. I mean, um, uh, basically, uh, the data that we have are uh, groupings, okay, uh, of, uh, that are based on quote-unquote objective issues. You know, what kind, what's your primary language? What's your religion? Uh, what kind of et ethnic group do you uh, belong to? And it's not the way you define who you are, but it's the way somebody defines that you're uh, that you're X. You're not you belong to ethnic group X, not to ethnic group Y. And so that's the kind of data that we have. And uh, by implication, we can't say anything about negative things. You can't say a priori, you know, because you're a Muslim and you're in uh, Palestine or in Israel that you're you automatically define yourself as a, a, a more uh, uh, having higher affinity with the Palestinians in the occupied territories than having uh, affinity with the Jews in Israel. Uh, it's very difficult to say that a priori unless you really have the kind of data that Don basically is, is proposing to collect. We'll take one more question. So I guess in a way it kind of pulls together a lot of these comments. I mean, it strikes me that you're thinking about identity as an attribute of humans. And it seems to me that, at least I can't say for any company, but I think from a lot of constructivists think about identity, identity really is a map. It's a relationship. I mean, um, to see yourself as one thing is not to see yourself as another. To see yourself as, um, you know, in role terms, for example, you know, teacher implies student and so on. Mm -hmm. so, in that sense, the identity language of constructivism already has, in a sense, an implicit network theoretic basis. And actually, Pat Jackson has, and Dan Nixon have, have sort of tried to link constructivism to network theory in precisely that way. And what comes out of that kind of marriage is an endogenization of identity. So in a way, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult fit for you, in a sense, to map your framework as you're understanding it onto the identity language. And that may be why you've got a lot of these things. Well, I, I, I think, I, I, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I think identity is a network, and, and more, more importantly, it's an affiliational network in the sense that you can belong to multiple identities at the same time. It's not mutually exclusive. And therefore, uh, yes, I think you can endogenize identity. You can basically talk about the determinants of identity uh, in, in different groups. But, you know, this, this and, and uh, I think that uh, network... A social network analysis is eminently suitable uh, for for that kind of thing. Doing it on a cross-national level is, is is very difficult, and and doing it in an at an empirical uh, sort of large n uh, context is very difficult. But uh, you know there are a lot of different ways that you can do it in different groups and using different techniques. And survey is is very good for that kind of stuff. Well, I think we're way past one o'clock. So, <laughs> if you have more questions, uh, Zeb will be around for a little while. I know he's flying back to the West Coast uh, mm -hmm. this afternoon at some point. 
So I want to thank him for coming. I want to thank all of you for coming. I also, before we thank Zev, finally, I want to announce that on Friday, right, Brian, we have Scott Gelbach from the uh, Political Economy Discussion Group, same place, uh, same time. But Friday will be another little, different focus. So, Zev, thank you very much thank for coming. You. Thank you. 